0: Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. This is Caleb, and this is a podcast designed to help equip you to reach American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I'm joined by Tim Alberta, who is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and staff writer for The Atlantic magazine. Uh, He wrote a book in 2019 called American Carnage on the Front Lines. Of the republican civil war and the rise of president trump and he has recently written a book which i have loved reading called the kingdom the power and the glory american evangelicals in an age of extremism in this episode we talk a lot about uh, the history of evangelicalism in america and our experience growing up in it and how we've seen it shift over time and we also talk about how Uh, the church, uh, many in the church, specifically the predominantly white evangelical church of America, uh, seems to long for and pursue power and how that manifests itself in a variety of ways, including Christian nationalism. So this is a bit longer of an interview, but there's so much good stuff here. I wanted to give it all to you. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Alberto. So Tim, you wrote the book uh, "The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory." Awesome, awesome, awesome book title. Uh, where, where have I heard that before? That phrase. <laughs> yeah, it rings a bell. It rings yeah, a it's bell. Very doesn't familiar. It.
1: It's got this. Yeah, it's. Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I was actually going through bins of old stuff like that your parents keep from when you're a little kid, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I I was going through bins uh, in my mom's basement, uh, like a couple of months ago, because I was trying to find uh, pictures for uh, like childhood pictures um, of us at the church where I was born and us when we moved to a new church. And um, while I was rummaging through these bins, I happened upon a little collection of, scribblings from the pew uh, from uh, which I'm not sure why my mother would have kept those, but it made for some laughs and my wife and I were looking through them. And on one of them, um, I draw, it's a photo. It's a, it's a picture, a cartoon of uh, my dad on the front with his robes. And it says, you know, like Reverend Alberta, whatever. And it's like him holding a Bible and preaching. I'm probably like eight years old when I'm drawing this. Right. And then on the back side of the card, it has the Lord's Prayer. And at the bottom, it has those words, uh, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In like big, like all caps. Yeah. And um I showed it to my wife, and we were both kind of amazed, because obviously I don't remember drawing this particular thing like 30 years ago, but we were both kind of amazed um at just like the symmetry of it. And I was recounting to her how I'd just always been like, um, enamored of those words, how, how they'd always just like sent a chill down my spine, but also Mm. always spun my head around a little bit, like from the time I was young. So, um, and they still do, you know, it's, it's, um, there are just certain passages of scripture that like that have that effect on you. And that's certainly
0: one of them. So you're in the, you're in the bin power, the kingdom power and the glory. Uh, you know, it is such a striking phrase, but I also love how, that really captures the essence of what you're writing about. It's a question of where do I find the power and the glory? Uh, Where do I see the kingdom? And by which means do I engage the kingdom? And we see that concept of power throughout. You've done such a great job in your book showing that. You also talk about, just thinking about the word the kingdom, how a word that's very common in church spaces, the word faith, Uh, it's not just uh, belief in or mental assent to something. You notice that it also has this concept of allegiance. Talk a little bit about how faith and allegiance go together and how that might shape our civic life.
1: You know, uh, so the pastor who succeeded my dad in... uh in our home church, a Cornerstone EPC in Brighton, Michigan, which is where I grew up. His name's Chris Winans, and Chris is an awesome guy, uh, just uh, a dude who I have immense respect for. And uh, he actually was the first to really introduce me to that idea of faith as allegiance. Hmm. And it's a really interesting concept. And when you start to unpack it, it really makes sense because if you think about the idea of in the – first century Roman context of transferring your faith to Jesus, putting your faith in in, in Jesus, uh, it really was a matter of uh, transferring your allegiance, not only transferring your allegiance away from the rulers, uh, uh, the the powers that be in that time, which was, of course, uh, the Roman Empire, and defying them openly, but it was transferring your allegiance away from the Jewish laws and the, uh, the sort of um, the ruling ethnic sensibilities that your people had pledged allegiance to many hundreds of years earlier and that had informed your entire family's history. Um, I mean, that's like, I, I think that's one of the pieces of, of the biblical... Arc that we sometimes gloss over that I'm always really fascinated by this idea that you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the Jewish people living under the old covenant and, and being bound by, I think what could objectively be described as some, some incredibly strict codes and mm. rules and regulations. And suddenly Overnight, basically, I mean, you do you do see some examples of people sort of struggling with it, uh, you know, as with Peter, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, like, you know, uh, okay, I'll eat the pork. Oh, maybe I won't eat the pork. No, yeah, I'll hang yeah, with yeah. the Gentiles. Maybe I won't hang with the Gentiles. Right. There's a little bit of that wishy-washiness. But I think in the, in the broad stroke, you see these people who had lived this way, whose families had lived this way, whose allegiance was pledged to this lifestyle. Mm. for hundreds and hundreds of years and suddenly just this switch flips and overnight, you know, they're not worshiping on Saturday anymore. They're worshiping on Sunday. They're not afraid to eat pork anymore. Matter of fact, they'll basically eat anything. They're Mm. not, you know, afraid to consort with ethnic enemies anymore. In fact, they're going to worship together with them. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's wild. And the only way of explaining that is a dramatic shift in allegiance, right? If you think about how um, it, it is almost, in the sense, uh, when we think about national allegiance, right? You, you you grow up as a little kid in the classroom. I pledge allegiance to the flag, yada yada. Like that, that's a part of who you are. It's a it's a part of your identity. Imagine one day walking into the classroom and then being like, you know what? Actually, today we're going to pledge allegiance to a different country, hmm. right? Even as a child, you would be yeah. like. I'm not sure that's a good idea, right? right. Like I, I I've been programmed this way. So that's such a, it's such a, it's such a dramatic shift for someone to make. And, um, and, and I think th- imagining our faith in that same sort of context that it's, that it's, you're making that shift. And also there's a permanence to it that you can't mm. go back. It's, 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 It's not, um, it's not like the transfer portal in college football where you can just sort of dabble. I think I'll go to this team. Ah, Maybe I'll go to that team. Ah, I think now I want to go to that team. No, like this is, you know, you've invested your faith in Jesus. That is where your allegiance is and all other allegiances now fall by the wayside.
0: Yeah, that's so good. In uh, in America, we see we hear this language of like American Christian nationalism, and there's a lot of uh, merging or syncing uh, Christianity or the Christian faith, Christian tradition with uh, the American civic religion. They're 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 not two counterparts; they're almost together, uh, woven together. But America is not the only one uh, who's guilty of this. Uh, this can happen in any country. You in the book talk about an experience you had with Miroslav Volf. Would you share a little bit about that with us?
1: Yeah. So for, for those who don't know his name, Miroslav is a a brilliant theologian at Yale. And he has this fascinating backstory where he grew up in the former Yugoslavia Mm -hmm. and his father was a, a Protestant uh, preacher there. And which, um, You know, Protestants were pretty few and far between in the Balkans uh, during that time. And so he was raised uh, in this really interesting environment where there were these ethno-national religious uh, uh, tribes sort of on all sides of him. So you had Muslims, you had Catholics, you had Orthodox Christians, and then they were broken into their – so those sort of religious tribes – also, happened to overlap with ethno-national identities. So, w- depending if you were in, in Serbia or if you were in Bosnia, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, as Miroslav was growing up and he was seeing this, he eventually came to the West to um, do some of his uh, uh, su- some of his theological training, and he was he was becoming more aware of how religion. Was being sort of fused into an identitarian movement Mm. on all fronts. That the deeper, uh, the the, the, like the deeper one would, uh, sort of uh, immerse themselves into these movements, the more symbolic the religion would Mm. become like it would become more symbolically important, but less substantively important as he Mm -hmm. describes it, you know, as he describes it, it it would almost become like a religious marker, but it was hollowed out of its true religious meaning. Mm -hmm. And so he was seeing that happening in his homeland. And then of course, uh, as he's in the West studying, uh, you have mass conflict breaking out in his, in his homeland and you have, genocide and you have ethnic cleansing and all of this perpetuated by, uh, perpetrated, I should say, excuse me, by, um, uh, these sort of identitarian movements that were weaponizing religion as a means of conquering their sort of tribal enemies. And and of Mm -hmm. course, um, as I point out in my book, in this chapter, talking about this, um, it's no coincidence that when Slobodan Milosevic gives this famous speech that sort of uh, commenced the civil war in the Balkans, that he was flanked on both sides by Orthodox priests, right? That Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. that was, he was drawing his justification for conflict from a supernatural source. And What was so interesting about that time that I spent with Miroslav um, in France uh, a couple of years ago when he was describing this was we were joined in that conversation uh, by a Russian Orthodox dissident named Cyril Hoverun, who used to be sort of the aide-de-camp inside the Russian Orthodox Church. He used to be kind of the right-hand man to Patriarch Kirill. Who is the second most powerful man in Russia, only to Vladimir Putin, and that discussion that was that 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 Miroslav was framing around the crimes against humanity in the Balkans and the sort of religious justification for them dovetailed in this eerily convenient way with what's happening today in Ukraine, yeah. with Patriarch Kirill helping Vladimir Putin to not only uh, to not only formulate this sort of what he called the the religion the the political theology of Putinism mm-hmm. uh, so sort of a political religion practiced in Russia that is infused with a, a, a spirituality that is not terribly substantive but extremely effective at a sort of symbolic level but also then cooked up this, Justification for the invasion of Ukraine, saying that our cultural values are under assault, that the enemy lives on the other side of the border, that we are not, that this is not just um, a land war, but this is a holy war, that this is good versus evil. And I think the point in my recounting all of that happening through the eyes of these two brilliant theologians from different parts of the world was to just to poke at the American believer a little bit and say, like, are you hearing this? Does this sound Mm -hmm. even a little bit familiar to you? Because if it does, uh, and if you think that there's even a chance that this sort of thing could happen here, then we need to be extraordinarily vigilant about this. And we need to be having a conversation in our congregations and in our communities about this uh, in a way that I don't see happening now.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so you've got this, you're you're exposing something that's happened for centuries, namely military and political figures uh, wanting to add weightiness to their political or military uh, desires or aims. And they kind of uh, sneak around and connect to the power source of religion, knowing that religion often has a, a weightiness in the masses that they lead. And so by co-opting that power, it's, it's a means of um, giving a kind of seal of approval. You know, this war isn't just political calculus or military calculus, it's divinely inspired. And so if you're against the war, you're not just against our argument, you're against God. And nobody wants to be against God. Uh, yeah. I remember um, after 9/11 uh, and the wars uh, in the Middle East, there was language being used by you know my political leaders uh, that were fighting the axis of evil and they were they were leveraging uh, biblical language, which meant something to me. Uh, it was very much appealing and connecting to something deep in my heart. And yet it seems like, uh, Tim, that not all political and military leaders, actually believe that the decision they're making is divinely inspired it, it may just be that it's political calculus one of the things you talk about frequently in the book is this idea that the ends justify the means that we we want to create a safe space where godliness reigns whatever that might mean and in order to do that we've got to get dirty or if you want to what's that phrase if you want to make an oblate you got to break a few eggs, so it's okay for us to use the power structures of this world, because what we're trying to do is build the kingdom. Uh, how did you see that? You you you've traveled all over the country. You talked to many different pastors, political leaders. Uh, how have you seen that concept of political calculus? The ends justify the means. Even even using scripture um, to uh, slap that onto a political argument. And you've talked to people who don't necessarily believe what they're saying, but they do it anyways. Talk about what you discovered in your travels.
1: I think what you said at the very end there is, in many ways, the key, which is that a lot of these guys don't really believe in what they're selling. You know, I've been so struck in so many of these settings where you're with somebody. Who is in a position of leadership, in a position of influence and authority? Maybe they're even the kind of chief architect of the event or the rally, the the the, the, the movement that you are embedded with at that time, and you're seeing the people all around them kind of whipped into a frenzy over you know the idea that the vaccines are controlling the population or the idea that the election was stolen or the idea that Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks are dining out on the blood of of infants for sustenance and it's a satanic cabal uh that Trump is involved with you know vis-a-vis QAnon like um or, or that Trump is involved with, uh, you know, breaking up. I should say, or or, or is or is almost uh, divinely appointed to be the deliverer of us mm-hmm. to save us from QAnon. You know that sort of thing. Um, and then you talk with that person, that principal who's at the head of it, mm-hmm. and they sort of roll their eyes. They they smirk. They they wink and nod at you and kind of you know let you know that they're in on the joke, right? That that. Yeah. That this is that this is a little nutty. This is this is not something that they personally subscribe to. However, look at all these folks who have now come under the tent. In some cases, literally come under the tent, and who they now have an opportunity to influence with the gospel. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you want to talk about the ultimate ends justify the means mentality. You know, you talk to a Greg Locke of Global Vision Bible Church in in Tennessee where, you know, this guy's now got thousands and thousands of people flocking to his tent on Sunday mornings and he's preaching to millions of people online. And he'll say to me straight up in the course of conversation, like, Christian nationalism, like, that's a contradiction in terms. What is it? I'm not a Christian nationalist. Like, I belong to the kingdom of God. And then you'll see him like two weeks later out at some event, calling himself a proud Christian nationalist and like leading these chants where it's like a call and response of he'll, he'll be like, Jesus. And everybody in the crowd says America. And then he'll say America and everybody in the crowd says Jesus. And then, but, but you're you're like, well, hold on a second. Wait, didn't you just tell me? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I told you, but you know, look at all these people I'm, I'm able to influence now. Right. And so that's the sort of thing where, you witness it up close and not only do you conclude like, wow, this is kind of grotesque and, and, uh, and we should be really, uh, wary of, of these, these so-called shepherds who are mm-hmm. at the, at the very, in the very best case scenario, they are just hired hands, uh, as Jesus warns of, uh, they're not shepherds. They're just hired hands who will run away at the first sight of a wolf. Or at worst, they are themselves wolves, right? That they are actively preying on these people. Um, that's That's the disheartening reality that I encountered. When I say that it's disheartening, Caleb, let me be really clear. There is a big part of me in my heart of hearts that was hoping to discover that a lot of these guys really had fallen for it; that they really were in it, that they were hook, line, and sinker, bought in, true believers, fully invested in a lot of this craziness. Because at least at, at then at some level, I could, I could forgive it, or or I could right. understand, abide yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. understand yeah. it, you know. But but that's just not the case, I, you know. In most of these interactions I've had, with a few notable exceptions, as I talk about in the book, like I think Eric Metaxas, for example, is someone who as I've studied him closely and listened to him and watched his evolution and talked to people who know him very well, I think that there is substantial evidence to suggest that this is someone who has like fundamentally psychologically changed in Mm -hmm. ways that Hmm. maybe we just don't quite understand. I don't, I don't think that he's necessarily faking it. I think that he is someone who has actually bought in, uh, you know, to a degree that's, that's frightening, um, but I think the vast majority of these guys uh, that's just not the case, and and it's and it's incredibly, it's incredibly disingenuous, incredibly duplicitous, um, and it's it's a highly effective business model, right? They yeah. they get something yeah. out of this.
0: Yeah, you chronicle in the book uh, the rise of an organization, Turning Point USA, uh, and also related to that, some of the churches that have seen a lot more people come in, a lot more uh, people in the seats, a lot more dollars in the offering plate, so to speak. Um, so if, if a lot of the leaders don't actually believe this, right? It's not, there's not an integrity of belief there. It's just, I say the thing that gets the people to pay attention so I can grow the organization. Um, how are you seeing that take place across the country? I mean, are, are churches really buying into this as their church growth model? I think
1: lots of them are based on what i've seen, and you don't have to i mean what's the old expression that um uh, you know every movement turns into a turns into a business and then eventually turns into a racket right mm. like uh, <laughs> I forget the exact phrasing of that, but i I think that's pretty much on the nose at least in my yeah. experience as a journalist, covering a lot of uh, sort of political schemes, like you know, this the, 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 nobody's necessarily reinventing the wheel here. And look, when you visit a church, like there's one in my hometown in Brighton, Michigan, that I write about in the book called Floodgate, where Floodgate prior to COVID nineteen had about a hundred people, maybe 125 people, I think, on a Sunday. And it was just like this little roadside church. I had never heard of it. I grew up in this town. I knew at pretty much every church in town. I knew the pastors. I knew their families. I had never heard of this particular church. And like a little charismatic, uh, you know, roadside place. Great. They're, They're doing their thing. I just wasn't really familiar with them. Fast forward. Suddenly, I had moved home. I'd I moved back to Michigan after my dad's death. So my wife and my boys and I, we moved back to Michigan uh, at the end of 2019, December of 2019. So a couple of months later, COVID hits. And every single time I'm talking with a friend or a family member in my community, they're bringing up this church, Floodgate. They're saying, have you heard about this? Like, what's going on over there? And at first, I'm just kind of brushing it off, like, whatever, whatever. And then I start looking into it. And, you know, the basically, the pastor there refused to... To close down, uh, and, and not only refused to close down, but made this very ostentatious show of defying the government, of giving a Nazi salute to Gretchen Whitmer from the pulpit, of turning his Sunday morning worship services into these like low rent Fox News segments, where it was like really cringeworthy and and really uncomfortable. But I kept going back because I couldn't, I like I couldn't understand not only from the pastoral perspective, how you would do this in your church, but then the supply and demand um, insight into realizing that the church was growing rapidly. And suddenly that church, which had a hundred people on a Sunday, a year into COVID-19, they've got 1500 every Sunday. And now a couple of years removed from it, they have relocated to this huge multi million dollar new campus just down the road, and they're like a mega church now, yep, right? Yep, yep. And so and so you study the incentives at work there. You study the people who had left a lot of uh, churches in the community, like mine where I grew up, because the pastors there suddenly were they were woke, they were Marxists, they were you know, they were radicals because they whatever they they shut their church down for two or three weeks or because they said from the pulpit that they cared about the lives of, of uh, their black brothers and sisters, whatever it was. Right. Like suddenly they became the enemy. So the people leave these churches. They go to a place like floodgate where they're not being fed. You know, they're, they're not being discipled but they're getting their identity their yeah. th- their political yes. identity nurtured and cultivated and rooted inside of a house of worship so it feels theological even though yeah. it's not and yep. and of course which has echoes back to the conversation about Miroslav Volf and what the the dangers he's describing there so that 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 growth strategy which you see in the in this one church setting i've seen it Caleb all across the country and 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 one of the remarkable things to me has been how when i'll share that story with a pastor that i'll meet in like oklahoma city or in you know orange county california or in the hudson valley in new york they'll be like oh yeah yeah we've got that exact guy yes, here we've right, got yep, that exact right. church here i mean this is it's it's the same thing playing out everywhere
0: yeah Oh, I have a question for you. Uh, so this is insider baseball. Um, you, like where you live, car dealerships, do they have giant American flags? Yeah. Okay. So like where yeah. I live, I think I've lived in Dallas too. And, and I just, I know there's just a certain size of American flag that seems to be at car dealerships. They're enormous, right? They're giant I watched certain churches installing that level of flag on their property. Have you seen that as well? I've seen it. Yep, (laughs) I have. Yeah, it's I certainly have. It's almost like a classification of church, like car dealership flag church. And we'll have to think of something more clever than that. But it's a a means of communicating, is it not, uh, what type of tribe we are. In this church, we're this kind of church. We're the big, giant American flag church. Uh, which seems to um, either wink at or explicitly communicate, we we are selling what you want to buy. If you want to hear a Fox News segment rant about LGBTQIA community, if you want to hear dehumanizing rhetoric about immigrants, if you would like for us to stir up your toxic anxiety about the other, uh, please come. And it's all under the guise, oftentimes, of uh, God and country language. Um, but really, it, it does seem to boil down to a theology of power: how we use power, how we should seek power. You mention in the book that a lot of what you discovered uh, was in re- out of these churches was in response to the events of 2020. So, to some degree, 2020. Uh, served as a galvanizing moment or an an apocalyptic or unveiling moment, how a church or a church leader responded, uh, whether it was to COVID restrictions, uh, to uh, the murder of George Floyd, to the federal election. And there seemed to be two uh, divergent paths that a church or a church leader would take. What, What were the two options that you saw people take?
1: You know, um, I'll cheat in my answer a little bit because I'm <laughs> go, I'm going to rely on not just for the duration of this conversation, but for the rest of my life. I'm going to rely on something you and I were talking about before we hit the record button, which was this idea of: is do, do you in times of panic, in times of worry, in times of fear, do you reach for the sword or do you reach for the cross? And you know. Um, at one point in the book, I'm talking with Pastor Brian Zond, yeah. who leads a church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Used to be a megachurch. <laughs> <You>, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it still has all the familiar markings of a megachurch. Yeah, it is yeah, huge. Yeah. And, and beautiful and has a parking lot that I think could fit like eight or 900 cars. And yet he's got like 120 people worshiping in there on a Sunday because he blew the whole thing up. Uh, mm-hmm. He And I tell the whole story of why of his decision to blow up the church because it was so, uh, it was so light on doctrine and so mm-hmm. heavy on expression and, and sort of superficial identity. Um, and, but Brian uses this expression where he basically says, um, you know, you can pick up the sword of Caesar, or you can pick up the cross of Jesus, but but it can't be both. You have to choose. And you said something very similar, Kayla, before we started. You know, that was in many ways the 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 divergence here in 2020, when uh, when there is this this sense that. I'll step back for a minute to frame the COVID-19 part of it because I think it's really important especially if you're listening and you didn't grow up anywhere near the evangelical world and you're trying to make sense of this. You know, for for generations in this country, evangelical and fundamentalist leaders were were framing this imminent collision between the forces of good and evil in this country that one day the good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians were going to come into conflict with those secular pagan liberals on the outside and that your right. faith would be tested in that moment that your your d- devotion to christ would be tested your conviction would be tested in that moment and you better be ready for it because it's coming so when COVID 19 arrives and some of these governors say okay we're, we're issuing shutdown orders and it implicates your house of worship you have millions of people who in that moment like the light bulb goes off and they say, okay, well, this is it, right? The prophecy is fulfilled. This is the moment they mm-hmm. told us about. And now they look to their pastors and say, well, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to handle it? Right? right? So in that moment of great anxiety and, and of great testing and uncertainty, um, you have a, a lot of believers in this country, people who I think are good and, and decent and earnest people who were frightened and they reached for the sword. They, they they reached for, they found power in turning to this idea of a sort of militant, offensive response that, no, you're not going to shut us down. We're going to shut you down. You're not going to tell me to wear a mask. I'm going to do what I, I want. I've got my freedoms. You're not going to impose yourself on, on me and on my faith. I'm going to use my faith to impose (laughs) on you. Like there was this right kind of reactionary response. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I think on the other hand, you had a lot of Christians who in that moment were also feeling uncertain. They were also feeling fearful. It's not like they weren't affected by this, but they, I think chose to reach for the cross and say, look, like ultimately um, our true security is found in Christ. Our true identity is found in Christ and we are called to not only to submit to governing authorities but we are also called to show the the show the love and the mercy of Jesus to those who we perceive to be persecuting us who who mm-hmm. we who whether they are or not right like and and there's a you know debate that can be had around the degree to which american christians truly are ostracized marginalized persecuted right like there's we can have a robust conversation around those things like but at the end of the day let's let's just let's stipulate for the purposes of this conversation that We were being persecuted, right? That the government was being weaponized to put Christianity in the crosshairs, to shut down our churches, to push Christians to the margins of society, that this was all part of the plan. Okay, then how are we called to respond biblically, right? I don't think that there is really even any ambiguity biblically about how we are called to respond. Even in that worst case scenario, uh, we are called to reach for the cross and we are called to to, to pray for our enemies, uh, to, to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek and to ultimately draw closer to Christ in our sufferings, um, to err on that side of the equation at all times. And yet what we saw in that moment, which I referred to it as a moment of testing, mm-hmm. I think it was a moment of testing in, in numerous ways. Um, and I don't think a lot of us passed the test. Frankly, Mm -hmm. I think I think that I think that when the results are graded, when we're looking back on it, not just three years later, but maybe 30 years later, as our kids, when they reach our age, are looking back on this period. My sense is that they're going to conclude that we failed the test rather badly Mm -hmm. at an
0: institutional level. Yep, I'm in agreement, man. And this isn't new to our generation. Uh, The churches always had this temptation of clinging to worldly power or clinging to the power of the cross, the, the kingdom. Uh, I, I, you know, my reading of the book of Revelation is a warning. Uh, the beastly power <laughs> that keeps being wielded by people like Caesar, it's so attractive. It'll make you money, it'll make you feel safe, but ultimately it just ends in death. And the book of Revelation flips that all upside down. and says the real power is in the, the crucified yet risen lamb uh, and it's so like mind blowing <laughs> that that's true, right? But the resurrection of Christ shows us that. And every generation of Jesus follower is faced with that same test. Will you pick up the cross or pick up the sword? Uh, it just so happens, I think in our generation, uh, that the sword that American Christian nationalists are advocating has a cross drawn on it <laughs> uh, that somehow Jesus is justifying our use of worldly power uh, because our aims are good because we want to do kingdom type stuff um, you know we want to protect the school board or protect the you know federal government or protect marriage or protect babies, therefore we can pick up uh, the power structures of the kingdoms of this world um, and again that 's the ends justify the means, which Jesus was so against. Um, How we behave, especially when we have power, uh, is so important. Um, And it's not that we get to excuse ourselves if our ends or our aims are good. Uh, The means do matter, and they matter to Jesus. Uh, you, you mentioned as you were engaging with people, and uh, you say this throughout the book, that many of the people that you met were good, decent, loving, uh, kind, uh, sincere. Uh, for those of us who maybe we're, we're, were on the outside looking into some of these Christian nationalist mm-hmm. organizations or rallies or YouTube clips, and we're seeing people or uh, we're seeing people on a stage, you went to a lot of these places. Is, is everyone that we're seeing on stage? Uh, like all bought in to this stuff or is there gradations of engagement? Um, Talk about, yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: it's a, it's a fair question. I mean, there are, there are levels to this. There are, you know, um, what, what and what I find interesting and I sort of return to this point a couple of times throughout the book is like, you know, you'll be talking with somebody who really is just sort of deep in this, right? They are, they are fully bought in and they have really lost the plot, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but there is still this, this spark in them. There is Ooh. still this, this, um, they want to be like Christ, I mean, I, I believe that I just, maybe I'm choosing to believe it. I've had people, you know, I, I, I get uh, plenty of hate mail from the right, but I get plenty from the left too. And I'll have people sort of, uh, you know, condemning me, rebuking me after I'll go on MSNBC or whatever, and say that like, you know, these people still have the father's heart. They're just, they've, they've lost their way. And like, they need to, they need some help to, to, to find their way back. And like, Oh, these, you know, listen, at the end of the day, You cannot believe that humanity, that life is made in the image of God, but then selectively apply it, right? Like, uh, so when I'll go to some of these events and see and hear things that are just, um, that are shocking and that are at times just abhorrent to observe, um, I have really tried with a, you know, and there are a couple of times where I fail and I, I try to cop to that in the book where there are a couple of moments where I just sort of have to walk away from certain scenes because it's so discouraging. Mm. But what I really try to do is see this as, um, a deviation that, uh, does not have to be this way. And so when you see people who are who have given themselves over to these kind of uh, bloodthirsty, militant hmm. uh, political calls to violence or people who have just subscribed wholeheartedly to these nonsensical conspiracy theories and whose lives have suddenly become, you know, dominated by disinformation misinformation like i i choose uh to not just discard these people summarily like i I want to be able to reach them in fact i've had uh and and let me be really clear about this like i'm not trying to this is not like saint timothy here like I, I, (laughs) i like i have i have on more counts than I care to recall lost my patience with these folks and have just um, moved on from them Hmm. only to then feel incredibly guilty about it and want to circle back. I mean, it's, it's hard. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. there's not, you know, there's no, there's no model for doing this other than the model of Jesus, I think, who tries to demonstrate to us how to try to care and nurture and bring people along when they're not quite there yet. Um, Yes. But you know, at the end of the day, it's one of these "there but for the grace of God go I" situations where uh, you 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 sense that if you can play a part in trying to in, in trying to reach these folks in trying to have a dialogue with them, then that's all you can do. But I'll be completely honest with you, Caleb. I mean, um, one of the things that That's it's both striking to me and worrisome to me is that in my journeys here, I have consistently found it easier to engage with unbelievers Hmm. on theological substance and really talk to them sincerely about Christ Hmm. uh, and, and his kingdom and the true power found in the cross that I found it much easier to have that conversation with unbelievers than with some of these hardened Christian nationalist types. Um, and so I I do worry that even though there's nothing, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no, there's no task here that, that God bites his fingernails over and says, Oh boy, I'm not sure if I can do this. Right. I'm not sure if, if I can, if I can solve this problem, I'm not sure if I can bring these people back. Uh, I have all the confidence in the world that, that his sovereignty uh, will, will rule the day here. But I do find myself wondering if some of these folks, um, if they, if they will ever find their way back Mm. Um, because the, the, I'll just say it this way, as plainly as I can. I'm a student of history, an amateur student of history, but a student nonetheless. And, and when I, try to synthesize what's happening in American Christianity today with the sort of trends of deep cultural and political tribalism amplified by these remarkable and rapid advances in technology and in in social media and connectivity that allow us to self-select into these little silos and then go deeper and deeper and deeper into them. Um, I worry that the stars have aligned here in ways that are really problematic mm-hmm. for for the church. Uh, and and that it's much harder now to fight this battle that you and I are describing than it ever would have been at any other time in the history of the church, because it's not like radicalism and extremism and fracturing inside the church. It's not like any of that stuff is new, but it feels like when it, when it merges with or or is overlaid onto some of these other factors, that's what does feel new to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're so right to notice. Um, oftentimes the message of the kingdom of God is received easier by those who are outside of religious circles. Uh, You see that with Jesus, right? Um, It's not always, but the religious elite were generally, at least in the gospels, resistant to the teachings of Jesus, especially how he applied them. And then it was the, the outsiders, the outcasts, the ones who the religious elite excused from fellowship or communion that got it. Uh, and you look at the the people who are always at Jesus' dinner table, and you see that. And it wasn't that all of the religious elite were resistant. You do have some who see the beauty of the kingdom and um, and desire it. Uh, but really, that message of the cross, it it usually in scripture gets picked up quicker by the outsider than the insider. And I love that you said that. The other thing I love that you said was... You know, when I approach people who are caught up in American Christian nationalism, you use the phrase, they've lost their way. And I love that, I, it's just reminding me, Galatians 6, one and two says, and I'll paraphrase, if any one of you is caught up in a transgression or an evil, you who are spiritual or spiritually mature, seek to restore that person gently and watch out for your own self, lest you too be tempted. And I'm convinced <laughs> for those of us that have American Christian Nationalists in our life, when we think about engaging them, 99% of the work is in my heart. Uh, it's my shame, mm. my derision, yeah. my outrage, my anxiety. And that's the space for me to take that to the Lord. Uh, because if I approach the American Christian Nationalists in my life, if I meet them in their anxiety and rage... Uh, we're only doing more damage to each other. Yeah. But if I can meet them as a representative of the kingdom, like a missionary um, in health and in peace, uh, I can invite them back to the way of Jesus. Galatians 6, right? Restore them gently back to the way of Christ. Uh, but it always, <laughs> it doesn't seem to happen in one meeting, Tim. Uh, <laughs> and I, I love what Paul, the apostle Paul says. He's like, yeah, we all have a role to play. And some of us like plant and some of us water, and some of us get to harvest. And I'm so convinced that for many of us, the Lord is calling us simply to gently plant seeds of repentance in the gardens of our loved one's lives that could grow into the fruit of repentance and we may not get to see it. Mm. Uh, but, but our role now is some of us are gonna plant, some of us are gonna water, some of us may harvest. Um, and so we pray that the Lord of the harvest would produce that repentance. And, and even just thinking as we kind of conclude our time together, as we're thinking about moving forward, um, what hope do you see? Thinking about the American Evangelical Church, uh, you've journeyed, like I said, all over the place. What, what hope do you see and, and maybe you could share with us?
1: Well, let me just affirm what you said there. Man, that's powerful and it's, and it's poignant and it's true. Um, most importantly, you just, you have to, uh, you know, my, my, my own pastor, he talks a lot about this idea that was something that I hadn't heard of a whole lot. I, 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 I guess I was familiar with it very broadly, but not a concept I'd spent any real time studying this idea of planting for future generations. Mm. Um, is something I, that he he returns to quite a, a lot and that I've been now reading more and thinking about more. And I think it's it's really interesting to me that, like, um, I described this at the end of the book, how my dad, who I would never have described as a Christian nationalist, but he was certainly someone who was um, passionately patriotic uh, and, and sort of um, I think at times <clears> – <throat> Uh, had an over-realized patriotism. Mm. And, you know, and that's like, uh, listen, I'm talking about somebody who's my hero and my role model. And that's mm. like hard for me to try to make those sort of sober assessments. Uh, and he's with the Lord now and he's not here to defend himself. So I must feel guilty saying this, but it's something that I've had to wrestle with, something I've talked with my mother about a great deal and mm. and others who knew him and loved him as much as I did. And I think that <clears throat> what I hope is that my sons one day will be able to study me in mm. a similar way and 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 kind of try to identify, did I have some blind spots and what were the things that I missed and can they do better? And I'm quite certain that one of the things that they'll probably see as something where I failed was in keeping that perspective you just laid out where 99% of the work takes place in my own heart, mm. um, where I need to be... Filled with grace, where I need to be meeting people on their own terms uh and 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 where I need to be gently planting these seeds, not not like not whacking at the ground with the sickle, but you know <laughs> gently laying these seeds um you know that's a failure in my own life and and, and in my own walk and something that i I know where I need to do better. But it's something that I also think my sons will be better in doing and hopefully their children. And when you ask about the cause for optimism, that's really where it is. It's generational. Um, I cannot tell you how many settings I've been in with younger evangelicals, you know, raised in the same tradition, and on paper, these are people who are not profoundly different from their parents. They are conservative, theologically, culturally, politically. They're you know they're conservative people, right? They check the boxes, and and again, if you just sort of put them through like a formula, you'd say, yeah, okay, that's where they land. Mm-hmm. But then when you get into this stuff that you and I are describing, um, the nationalism. The zealotry, the the militant approach to culture and and owning the libs and, and sort of zero-sum warfare with the outsiders, and they want nothing to do with any of that. They're mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. they are attitudinally and dispositionally so different from the previous generations. And I think in part it's because they have now like there's been a lot written about how it took centuries for believers uh, in different parts of the world to really study the experiment of state religion under Constantine and to see how damaging it was, right? And how, you know, they they couldn't course correct from it right away. They needed some space from it. I think we're dealing with a similar dynamic here where sure. a lot of young people now have a little bit of space, right? The, you know, the moral majority is 50 years old. They, they're yeah. able to step back and soberly evaluate this movement and what was accomplished or what was not accomplished by it. And what were the wins? What were the losses? What was the net effect on the church's standing in society and how, and the power and the influence and the credibility of the Christian witness. And they're able to sort of look at all that and conclude many of them that, that we've taken our eye off the ball, that we've Mm -hmm. lost the plot, that we've strayed from the path here and that they want to, they want to reclaim something that, that went sideways. And I don't, I think it's tempting for anyone in my position who's been on a rather dark and dreary odyssey here to, to go out of their way to conclude on that optimistic note. And I'm, I'm being as honest as I possibly can be. I'm, I'm, this is not a forced optimism. It's not a phony optimism. Like I, I I truly do believe even as my, confidence in this country sort of holding together in a healthy, pluralistic sense, even as that confidence diminishes. And maybe perhaps it's not in spite of that, but because of that, that I think that the Christian witness in the coming generations is going to become stronger and stronger and stronger. Because when you look at the historical trend lines in this sense, going back to Constantine, you do tend to see Christianity truly flourish when it is a counterculture, when it is something that is just just um, like fundamentally distinct from the way that the rest of the world works in terms of its pursuit of social and cultural and political power, when the church tries to be something very different, the church tends to thrive. When the church tends to grasp at that power and tries to dominate the culture around it, then the church tends to really struggle. And I think that's the cycle we've lived through here. So maybe as the country becomes more secular and as as the Christians grip on the levers of power starts to loosen then maybe the strength of the Christian witness grows uh, mm. that's 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 my optimism that's the thing that I see happening here uh, over the over the longer run that the harvesting done by our kids and by our grandkids will do amazing things for the kingdom in ways that maybe you and I aren't capable of doing yeah I love that. That's so good.
0: Uh, So Tim, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Where can people find you and your work?
1: Yeah, so my day job is as a staff writer for the Atlantic magazine. So you can find my work there. I also keep a backwater home run website, which is just by Tim Alberta, -alberta bytimalberta.com, where I post a lot of my magazine stuff and video clips and podcasts. So you can find my stuff there too.
0: Cool. Thanks so much for being on the pod, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.